Greetings, and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kevin Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kevin. How's life treating you this week? It's been going really well. How about you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. It's been uh, a bit of a recovery week for me, getting over the cold from last week. But I'm back on my feet, and I'm ready to get stuck into the Marion Conspiracy. Oh yeah, and it's a fantastic story too, introducing one of the most fantastic companions in Big Finish history. Of course, I'm sure most people don't need reminding that this is uh, Evelyn Smythe's first appearance, so this is Maggie Stable's first performance opposite Colin Baker. We know from our perspective that Evelyn is going to go on to be a very well-regarded and very well-considered companion in the grand scheme of things. But how did you find her here, Kevin? I mean, she comes out of the gate extremely well. I I mean, I knew when I first listened to this that she was going to be a returning companion, but I imagine they sort of build this way where she could be a one-off companion or not because she just fits the specific story so well. She, it's not like it feels built around her rather than an introduction and a separate story on top of that. But it does such a good job in like establishing who she is and building her rapport with the doctor and giving her a story that serves her strength so well. It's really a fantastic companion debut. One of like the best in who history total, I'd say definitely up there. Yeah. I think um, Maggie Stables makes such an immediate impression as Evelyn. And it is remarkable how well she's able to establish her character. I find a couple of the character ticks here are maybe ever so slightly exaggerated, the, the whole chocolate mm -hmm. thing and whatever, but it gives her sort of fairly broad details that, that the actor can sketch in herself. And she does it absolutely amazingly. And the fact that she has such a great rapport with Colin Baker as well really makes this kind of come alive because there's a sense in which you can, you can see that Big Finish are, st are starting to stretch their wings here, I think. This is a... A fairly different kind of companion. I don't want to. I don't want to overemphasize how different Evelyn is because I think she does have uh, an antecedent in Barbara. I think there's very clear parallels between Evelyn and Barbara. Not least, of course, their their sort of educational background. But but sort of beyond that, they're sort of strong-willed women who are are independent and have very much have their own mind and are very much capable of putting a sort of more irascible and sort of more abrasive kind of doctor in their place but doing it in a way that doesn't make them seem unsympathetic or needlessly confrontational i think that definitely is true of of barbara and i think one of the one of the great things that uh, evelyn is able to bring is that way there she she can convincingly put Colin Baker's doctor in his place without it just seeming like a sort of affectation. Colin Baker is, of course, playing a more gentle version of his doctor here, but the rapport between the two characters feels believable. And it feels believable because she is able to do something with her side of the role, which isn't something that we've really seen with the sixth doctor before. Even, I mean, you could argue that Mel put him in his place a little bit, especially with the whole kind of exercise bike routine and, and all that kind of thing. <laughs> But I'm not really sure that qualifies as the same thing as, as Evelyn is doing here. Um, and so that, that helps to give his character a bit more dimension as well. We see him responding to a different character type. We see him interacting with somebody who we just haven't seen Colin Baker's Doctor deal with before. And and I think that, that kind of interplay between the two is, is the greatest strength of this story. Yeah, I have to agree. Um, like you said, for the moment she's introduced in that sort of classroom scene where she's telling the doctor to knock off with his noise and stop interrupting her class. Like, she's already got sort of, like, this friendly antagonistic relationship with him instantly. And it sets the stage for their whole dynamic to come. And the fun, teasing way uh, 
Evelyn and uh, the Sixth Doctor play against each other, like even though they've just met, it's it works so well. And by the end of the story, when they sort of admit that they're now friends with each other, like you completely buy it because Stables and Baker just work together so well, like acting wise. I think they work well acting wise together, but I think there's also a sense that you can you can feel. The Sixth Doctor's respect for Evelyn growing uh, throughout the course of this story. You know, she's fairly competent. She's capable of taking care of herself. She doesn't run away. She doesn't scream, which must make a nice change from both Perry and Mel. And there's a real sense that that this is a grown-up character. When we were talking about Catherine Tate and Donna uh, last week, one of the great things about that relationship between her and the Tenth Doctor is that it's an adult relationship but it's not a relationship which falls back into kind of lazy cliches of romance or whatever. And that's exactly what we have here as well. This is a grown-up adult relationship between two people who respect each other. And it takes the course of that this story for that respect to really become fully foreign. But you feel that it's in place by the time the credits roll on the end of the fourth episode. And and that's great. They, they become completely integrated. And as a companion launch story, I don't really think this could have been much better. To go back to your saying about her never screaming or anything... She does make mistakes, but they're very sort of easy and like expected sort of mistakes. And Jacqueline Mayer's script does a good job of when she like accidentally reveals the future to people in the past or does sort of anachronistic things like that. It's more because about her and experience rather than it's because she twists her ankle or is being made out to be a victim in some other way. It's always brought back to sort of her intelligence and her learning. And so her mistakes are really sort of these, like feel like learning lessons that she picks up on quickly rather than sort of cliche ways that the show tries to sort of keep companions, I guess you'd say like in their place and sort of keep them as sort of rescuees in they are in worse or written stories. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what I meant earlier when I said that this is a sort of grown-up relationship and that these are these are two adults who are doing things um i think that the way that evelyn sort of goes through this story it i mean of course she makes mistakes that's perfectly logical but but it never makes her seem stupid or unsympathetic she's a knowledgeable character but there's a difference between knowledge and experience and that's really the gap that evelyn is filling just as i suppose anybody would um you could argue i think probably that she takes to the whole idea of time travel and tudor england maybe a little easy than 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 perhaps she could there's there's sort of no credulity and although it's fine that she kind of rolls with it it's it's and it's i mean if it is a mistake it's really a mistake in, on on sort of fairly simple scripting level it's not a character mistake it's not maggie stables doing anything wrong um so you could argue that she's maybe a little bit sort of easygoing for the whole experience in the first part but yeah once the story goes on of course she makes mistakes of course she doesn't necessarily understand fully the implications of everything she's saying or everything she's doing but they're normal mistakes they're human mistakes they're not just plot devices yeah and i think some of those mistakes which usually stem from like a sort of not caring about the anachronisms at least in this story it's used for great character development and sort of comic effect, too, when the doctor tells her to put on period clothing and she decides, no, I'm going to walk out in my cardigan. I mean, that's fantastic. That just sums up like the entirety of the character right there. And she doesn't mind showing Coco to other people and using that as a way to talk about expanding their own worlds and beliefs. And it's such like refreshing for someone to sort of point these things out and sort of be very at ease with the sort of time travel nature 
and sort of flaunt the rules a bit because it can be sort of boring <laughs> when the whole web of time gets dragged out again and again. So even though it's used as sort of a plot device when she screws up because of this nature, it's also fantastic sort of character work and sort of establishing Evelyn as a sort of very cavalier and no-nonsense person who can't be really ordered around by these sort of flimsy rules. Well, I think it's also one of those things that speaks to her discipline. You know, her discipline is history. It's not science or science fiction or, you know, any of those kind of fields. She's a historian. So, of course, she's going to get wrapped up in, in being involved, traveling in history. That's going to be her her passion, her enthusiasm. I mentioned Barbara earlier. Of course, we saw exactly the same thing happening to her in the Aztecs. That's one of the great joys of, of being able to explore history if you're a historian. Um, sort of full confession here, I, I studied history at university as well. Well, English and history, technically. Um, so it's very easy for me to get kind of caught up in that same sort of passion that, that Evelyn has for exploring the past. And of course, she doesn't follow every rule. Of course, she doesn't know about every little quirk which could lead to a paradox or a a, a time anomaly or, or whatever it is that's that's exactly in her nature because that's not her discipline so yeah I completely agree with you this is a really good use of her character rather than sort of using sort of genre self-awareness to have shortcuts in the story yeah and it just shows how again right out of the gate Jacqueline Rayner understands this character and other writers can build from the character so easily and turn her into what's going to become such a beloved entry into who canon I was going to say, I don't think it's uh, any great spoiler to say that uh, uh, Maggie Stables and Evelyn are, are, are one of my favorite characters from the whole of Doctor Who in any kind of way, shape or form. So it's always difficult when you go back to stories like this. You, you kind of worry that you're looking through rose-tinted glasses when you go back and review them. Um, and although I'm going to go on to have other criticisms of this story. But just the sheer wonder of uh, Maggie Stables in this episode just makes it worth listening to along. For all the other criticisms that I'll make in a short while, uh, of which I have a few, um, there's no doubt at all that this whole episode, this whole story is worth it uh, just just for Evelyn. And, and as I said, as far as companion lunch stories go, it, it just couldn't be better. Yeah, completely agreed. Well, we'll have the next two episodes to talk about Evelyn, so maybe we should talk about some of the other elements of the story right now before we run out of time. Um, I guess the logical next point would be to talk about the Doctor and Colin Baker's performance, but I really think you can't do that without talking about what he does for most of the story, which is his scenes with Queen Mary, which are, outside of Evelyn, probably the next most important emotional backbone of the story. and. I want to know what your thoughts are on those long, long scenes where he and the Queen debate morality. I think it's very interesting to see Colin Baker's Doctor taking on that kind of role. Uh, it's very unusual to see him... It's not really that he's passive, exactly. I was going to say it's unusual to see him so passive, but that's not really right. It's unusual to see him underplaying, especially this early on. We know that that will become one of Colin Baker and the Sixth Doctor's great skills in the future. But right at this point in his career and, and in Big Finish, we're not used to seeing Colin Baker and the Sixth Doctor having that kind of underplayed and that much more kind of affecting kind of emotional maturity. If I'm honest, I find the morality, it's, it feels ever so slightly tacked on to me. It's not that the debate that he's having uh, isn't worthwhile or isn't one that's worth exploring. But I think it's one that's maybe a little bit too over-dependent on 
fan existing knowledge the, the the way that the doctor is sort of saying well if i really believed something uh would it still make it all right even if people died that's okay you can you can see little hints of you know genesis of the daleks or whatever in there but the sort of encroaching darkness kind of thing it, it's kind of dependent on on knowledge of the valleyard and and that kind of whole sort of corruption of the doctor thing and i think it slightly overplays its hand there it's not that Baker is bad at it. He isn't. He's absolutely bloody brilliant in it. And his interaction, the Sixth Doctor's interaction with Queen Mary is, is as you say, it's really the emotional spine of the story. And I think in isolation, it works quite well. But I find it's just, I don't know, it's just, I don't know how you would do it differently to kind of make it sort of better or sort of less fan dependent. But it's just, it feels just ever so slightly, not hollow, but slightly not quite there. That's really interesting because I didn't ever – that never really crossed my mind thinking about the Valyard or how the Seventh Doctor would get darker when he's talking about that. What I did think of is how it's a weird precedent for a lot of monologues from the new series, especially that David Tennant would deliver about um, morality and whether he's right or wrong, oncoming storm, things like that. And it's, I guess, a sort of weird precedent to sort of the same debates that would be happening then. I don't know. That's – it's interesting. I do think – the morality, there's just not enough room in the story with so much else going on for it to be a fully fleshed out argument. And like I agree that the doctor's side is, because we've seen it hashed out so much in so many other media, is a bit weaker. But it is still sort of a fascinating take. It's an unflinching take, I think is the best way to put it. It doesn't like shy away from really getting down into how the parallels between Mary and Thomas Smith and how you can't really tell which is in the right. And I think even if the story can't really pull off making that a complete cogent debate, it does a really fascinating job trying. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, firstly, I also want to say that I completely agree that this is exactly the kind of speech that David Tennant would give. And we kind of, again, we kind of saw that last week with the uh, conversation he had with Donna about um, never being ready for his companions to leave. And it's it's got that kind of emotional openness and that kind of emotional maturity to it that I, I think a really good doctor performance can can bring out and I, I do definitely agree that 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 whole side of it I mean yeah Baker is brilliant in the role and and that is well written what I think you know what I think it is now that I'm talking about it out loud I think there's a I think there's a divide in this story um, and it's one that the, it, it leaves the story ever so slightly uh, broken back because most of this story is written as a romp I think it's fair to say um, there's no real great sense of threat in any of this, even with the potential of Evelyn sort of being deleted from time and sort of fading away back to the future style. And with the, you know, sort of European politics and the sectarian differences between Protestants and Catholics, there's all this kind of sort of churning kind of very dark kind of themes in, in Tudor England. And the whole story is written like it's kind of, you know, just this very light sort of romp. And there's a kind of stylistic divide. So because there's no real sense of, of, sort of threat or, or, or any sort of sense of darkness within the play, because it's just this kind of fairly lighthearted, fun introduction for Evelyn, when the story tries to take a turn and, and move towards this kind of moralistic or, or this debate around morality, it can't it can't turn the corner fast enough, so it kind of hits the curb. It's it's not that either of those two things are are bad 
in and of themselves, but they don't quite line up in in this story. And and because of that, yeah, I I, I feel that the the morality debate, well written and well acted though it is, is left just a little bit airless. Yeah, and that sort of trying to mix the comedy and drama is a very big hallmark of uh, writer Jacqueline Rayner's writing. And I'm glad we finally gotten one of her stories because I consider her in general to be sort of alongside Rob Sherman and like one of the really great like early big finish writers. She will do this sort of mix of comedy and drama much better in the later on Doctor Who and the Pirates. But this definitely feels like a bit of a sort of growing pains for her because, yeah, the comedy scenes with Crow and Leaf, who are a pretty fantastic and funny double act, do sort of mesh not as well with the very much more dramatic scenes between the Queen and Thomas and people of that sort of part of the story. Yeah, I think it's very hard sometimes to put aside kind of our own prejudices. I, I agree. I think Jacqueline Rayner is, generally speaking, a terrific writer. But it's kind of because we are armed with that knowledge, it can sometimes be a bit frustrating to see her writing something which isn't as good as we expect it to be. And, you know, I've also, I, I mean, apart from Big Finish, um, she also wrote one of the Eighth Doctor novels, um, Earthworld, which I think is a terribly underrated novel. And it's really, it's just great. And she's done, you know, uh, a couple of companion chronicles, uh, First Doctor stuff, which have been brilliant as well. So, it, it's you know, she, she can cover quite a few different kind of genres, different periods of the show. And of course, it's it's just, it's great to have, you know, this really talented female writer. We were we were talking about female perspectives last week and, you know, here we have it again. We have this really gifted writer, um, but she's just not quite at the top of her game in this story. But, you know, of course, this is the first one she's written. So it's, in a way, it's a bit unfair to kind of put that weight of expectation on it, but I still can't quite get away from it either. Yeah, it's... Like I said, it's growing pains, and you can see it in the weird mesh of tones, and you can also see it in like the really bizarrely placed um, cliffhangers. The end of episode two with Evelyn just forgetting her bag and that almost causing her to die. That... <laughs> yeah, that's about her not making dumb mistakes. I have to take that back. That is one really dumb mistake. Well, it's a it's a dumb mistake of the character. And it's a dumb mistake of the writer because you need to build that up. You can't just have everything stop and somebody forgetting their handbag unless you're writing a straight out comedy, which this isn't. Uh, yeah, you can't get away with that. So yeah, agreed. The, the the no stupid mistakes, one exception. That is the definite equivalent to, I don't know, Mel falling and twisting her ankle or something <laughs> like that. That would be sort of contrived on the show. It is really ridiculous. Um, and I guess there's contrast. There is one cliffhanger I do like, though, the end of episode three, where it's not much of a cliffhanger because it's sort of built on knowledge that you know won't turn out to be true. But Evelyn teasing the doctor about him possibly being her fa her ancestor is like pretty good mileage out of that. That's a great performance from both of them. Oh yeah, and that's uh, that's one of the other things about this. Because the doctor spends so long with Mary and because Evelyn spends so long with the kind of conspirators, it, when you get these little moments that they, the two of them are together, you suddenly, you feel so much sort of, such a rush of joy. And like that fourth episode, which they mostly do spend together, building off the back of that, that uh, episode three cliffhanger, it's it's so wonderful. And like, I understand why they're split up, especially for Evelyn, because it gives her a chance to sort of have her own definition away from the Doctor and then bring them together so that uh, we can then see these two characters interact. That's fine. That's, that's, that's sort of good character work on, on a scripting level. But it's also you just you, you can't you can't help but want to see these characters or listen to these characters have more time together and yeah it's a great cliffhanger it's really well played and and it's just 
these two are really, really good comic actors as well as just being good dramatic actors. I think Rainer does a great job in sort of keeping them apart because that just sort of builds like every moment they spend together, very quick moments in the first three episodes. You want to see more of it and more of it. And then that comes to a great head in the fourth episode where they spend the whole time together. And it just it's just a great job building anticipation. So you're really sort of into the pair once they become a pair fully. Yeah, and I think it's as well that Evelyn goes on to become a companion, not simply because she's great here, although obviously she is, because the script doesn't give us a lot of, beyond the fact that she's a likable character, the script doesn't give us a lot of reason to invest in her, beyond the fact that she has this kind of, you know, uh, paradox going on around her. Um, the, especially sort of early on, although the interactions between Evelyn and Sixth Doctor are terrific, there's just there is a slight sense that this could be... No, I don't want to say anyone. That sounds far, far too harsh and, and sort of more critical than I, I really mean it to be. But, you know, we know that she's going to go on to be one of the best companions of all time. But that's with our future knowledge. Listening to the episode, the Doctor seems to be spending a lot of kind of energy saving one history lecture for no readily apparent reason beyond the fact that that's sort of what he does. I can promise you if it'd be one of my history lecturers, they would be dead. They would be deleted from time. <laughs> But uh, so, yeah, it's kind of I understand sort of why there's a kind of lightness there early on. Uh, and once once Evelyn gets her teeth into the story, then it becomes clear. But there's, there's that slight that slight early on sort of right. But why is this important? And that does kind of nicely link in with that sort of end of episode three cliffhanger. Of course, we know that she's not really going to be the doctor's great, 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 great um, descendant. But there's this. I don't know. This story frustrates me sometimes because there's some nice stuff going on there, but it's also stuff that could have maybe a little bit of editing or a little bit of extra rewrite could have just clarified those things and, and kind of made this a little bit tighter with these these details. Yeah, a little bit of editing and maybe expansion in some areas because it does sort of come to a very quick wrap-it-up conclusion. Uh, the mystery of why he's called John Whiteside Smith is because, oh, it's just named after the Doctor, and that feels very sort of cast aside. And granted, it's coming off the heels of sort of the great reveal that Sarah was in on it the whole time, though it's granted. I can't remember how surprised I was the first time I heard this story. Re-listening -re to it, I definitely remembered that Sarah was going to be John's mother and Thomas was going to be his father. And it was all going to that it was all tied together. But it's still I feel like there was enough clues dropped from Evelyn's initial explanation of who John Whiteside Smith was and from his parents, that it's pretty easy to piece together what's going on and who the real insider in Mary's court is. But it does feel a little sort of, you get one great dramatic moment with Sarah at the end, but then the rest of it feels very rushed. Yeah, it definitely does feel rushed. And we've said before that this is one of the uh, early features of Big Finish, that stories tend to kind of rush their conclusion, even though they can be a bit flabby before we actually get to that conclusion. And I think to an extent, the Marian conspiracy definitely fits into this. Um, but the other question I kind of want to ask you whilst we're on this sort of topic is, how do you think this fares as the first kind of uh, sort of pure historical? Uh, because it, that's that's what it is. And that's certainly the first time Big Finish have done one. It's the first time we've, the well, let's, you can take it as the, the Highlanders are, uh, Black Orchid. I, I'm not going to argue the point one way or the other, but certainly at the very least since the early 80s and, and possibly the 60s. So yeah, how, how do you think it does as, as what is essentially a pure historical? 
Well, my opinion on historicals is that they're tricky to do well, but when they're done well, they're fantastic. And why they're tricky to do well is there's no flashy monster coming at you, or there's no easy time travel gimmick. It's You have to rely fully on the historical characters you're picking and the conflict that can arise from very much more mundane circumstances. I think this does a great job, though, because there is a lot of tension in the era that they pick, that Rainer picks. It's the conflict between Catholics and Protestants, while maybe a bit too heady for the wider romps running in other places, is still a great generator for this conflict of conspiracy and sort of tension between trying to figure out who is on what side and the sort of way the Doctrine Evelyn's allegiances, they don't flip from their perspective, but from the perspective of people around them keep changing, which is always fascinating throughout the story. So this is definitely the first of probably many examples of historical Big Finish do well, even though when they whiff, I think they kind of whiff pretty badly. Yeah, I think that's a very good description of, of historicals and, and how they work. And I'm, I agree with you as well, saying uh, that, you know, when they're good, they're very, very good. And when they're bad, they're awful. Uh, there's, there's no real middle ground there. Um, I think this does bring historicals sort of back from the death, as it were, um, with remarkable confidence. There's no, I mean, it, you could sort of argue that this is not quite a pure historical because we have this kind of time anomaly in the minute in the middle of it we have the paradox but to be honest that's that's mostly surface dressing it's basically a straight historical and yeah i think it does a, i think it does a solid job of bringing it back and and showing the worth of having historicals because i think it was i i, I certainly think even now it's an uphill struggle to explain to people what the point of doing a pure historical is in such a a sci-fi driven show and especially now especially with the new series there's that sense that, that a pure historical would be a very very difficult sell indeed we've never had one since the show was brought back in 2005 and i'm doubtful that we're going to get one anytime soon although i would be quite happy to be proved wrong on that um so yeah i think this does a good job in bringing it back and and yeah shows the worth of the format yeah one thing i want to mention that you touched on is the educational factor this is Granted, characters like John Whiteside Smith didn't actually exist, but Mary's sort of religious beliefs and her persecution and the way the sort of country flipped from Protestant to Catholic and back again is very rooted in a historical fact. And this is a great job sort of interrogating the motives behind those sort of policies. And so as sort of like a crash course on the, her reign, it does a very effective job while still being very entertaining. I enjoy that part of it a lot. Yeah, that, that part of it feels very much of, of a kind with the Hartnell historicals. There's a real sense that some little nuggets of facts are being sort of dropped in so that people might learn something about an unfamiliar period or an unfamiliar reign, especially when it's Elizabeth and Mary. You know, Elizabeth gets a lot of focus for obvious reasons, but the fact that it's Mary, that, that tends to get much, much less focused, despite the sort of, you know, chronological closeness of the two. And and so, yeah, there's a sense that a few educational nuggets are being dropped in here. Of course, that's always been a feature of the historicals, um, but it's not heavy handed. It doesn't stop and lecture the audience for five minutes about, you know, who was right and who's wrong or, you know, this kind of long chain of mon monarchical history or whatever. There's just enough detail that it gives color to the story and, and provide a bit of information, but not so much that it bogs the whole thing down. Yeah, it's strikes that balance so well. And 
like as the first historical, it's going to set a good precedent for a lot of other historicals of that nature that Big Finish are going to do as it goes on. And really, I give a lot of credit to Big Finish for bringing the historical back and applying it to pretty much every doctor in their stable by this point. I think maybe it's just Tennant, right, who's never done a pure historical yet, just uh, yeah. by nature of only having... Yeah, yeah I think it's only... T- I'm trying to think what... Tom Baker's historical is, and if I think of a straight historical, and if it, if I think about it, it'll come to me, but I can't put my finger on it right now. But yeah, other than that, it's 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 just uh, it's just David Tennant, and just by nature of him only having three stories out so far, so they've done a great job, like showing how all these different doctors would act in this sort of historical setting, and it's been really fun to experiment with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, but since we are um, moving sort of from from the plot onwards. Uh, I think we should probably talk a little bit about the performances. We've discussed Colin Baker and Maggie Stables, I think, enough. Um, what did you think of the rest of the cast? I think the clear standout among the rest is uh, Anna Rudden as Mary. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But she does such a fantastic job holding together the moral conflict at the center. We've talked about how it may not work from a scripting perspective, but that's not from lack of trying for her. I really feel sympathetic for the character even though everything Evelyn says about her is kind of true she has led to the death of a lot of people but when the doctor sort of gives the argument for her idealism it's hard not to feel sympathetic and a lot of that is down to Rudden's extremely sympathetic performance yeah I think she is definitely the standout of the cast Uh, her performance is fantastic and again because she's underplaying and because her scenes with Colin Baker he's underplaying as well there's there's a very nice kind of understated rapport between the two which never sort of it, it doesn't become cloying or or sort of whatever it's just this sort of very natural way of two people uh speaking to each other and yeah I I, I think Rudden is absolutely the the standout in the cast and it's also it's quite an unusual way of portraying Mary um we would maybe expect her to be portrayed as as maybe a lot more bloodthirsty uh, a lot more uh, violent a lot more uh, even just angry or sort of uh, you know verbally aggressive the fact that she's played sort of with this much more understated much quieter side to her character that's unusual characterization i greatly approve of it because it's not a a print the legend version of history i really hate it when doctor who does print the legend versions of history um for me the worst example of which is is churchill in the new story which is uh, the new series <sighs> rather which is just i'm not going to get started on that that but i really really hate it so i i greatly appreciate the fact that they take time and care to not just do the legend version of mary but but to make her a sympathetic character and even things like the phantom pregnancies that's a very un- that's a very unusual detail to throw in, um, and so uh, yeah, I really admire the way that her character is constructed, and and it it makes her, if not necessarily uh, sympathetic, then at least understandable and relatable to it. That's what you need in that core character. Yeah, throw another example of print the legend that I really don't like. As much as the rest of it is kind of a fun romp, uh, Shakespeare Code <laughs> does way too over the top with. I, like... I just stopped myself from swearing there. I really loathe the Shakespeare Code. It's it's bottom five for me. I think I'd rather watch uh, Love and Monsters again than, than the Shakespeare Code again. I absolutely hate it. But that's a separate issue. Um, to tie yeah. back into what we were talking about, <laughs> yes. what makes Mary so good is that it's not just praising her like Churchill and Shakespeare in that episode. It's the good and the bad. It's not print the legend, not print the demon. It's making her this very fully well-rounded character. And it really doesn't 
come down one way or the other. I mean, okay, it comes down that burning people is bad, but not one way or the other on whether her intentions are bad or not, whether she is a truly evil person just because um, because of how she truly believes she's saving people's souls. And the fact that it can hook you into that sort of dilemma, like with someone who is burning people to death, is a true like achievement of the writing. Oh, I completely agree. It's it's nuanced. That's the word I want to use to describe it. It's a nuanced description of the character. And that's that's fantastic. That's exactly what the role needs. And even by the end of the story, as you say, that it's 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 made clear that what she's doing is horrific. And the fact that she sincerely believes that she's saving people's souls, of course, it links in with the, the conversation that the doctor is having um about his own kind of crisis of conscience and i think in those moments that's that's when his side of the conversation starts to get a little bit of bite to it that's when it starts to work i don't as i said earlier i don't think it works all the way through uh, and i think it's a little bit too much weight for the episode to bear um but when we're getting those more direct comparisons between the two i think that's when the story really comes alive and 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 when we get a proper contrast between those two characters yeah to contrast running with the rest of the cast like it's almost sort of a shame no one else stands out as much. You have um, Nicholas Pegg and Barnaby Edwards as Thomas and Denny respectively, who pretty oh, don't much don't speak to don't speak to me about Barnaby Edwards. He's so bad in this. Oh yeah, god, he's so over the top and such a mustache twirling, and not in a fun way. I mean, it's just sort of. Mm. Well, this is the second time we've returned to the Barnaby Edwards School for Lost Accents because he was in Storm Warning as well. Oh, and he, yeah. was, he was just as bad there. And this time he is doing how you say the terrible French accent, but it is not even it is not even a low low bad. It is the French taunter from your Monty Python. <laughs> and it is just awful. It undermines absolutely everything about the character. It's just impossible to take him seriously. And it's deeply frustrating. I, I kind of agree with you that none of the other cast members stand out, but I mean, they're not. None of them are really bad, but he absolutely oh, no. is bad. And and I know Barnaby Edwards is going to go on to do a lot of directing for a Big Finish, and I think that might be more his calling than acting. Yeah, I have to agree as well. Um, I say, like I said, no one else really stands out, but uh, Sean Jackson and Jez Fielder as Crow and Leaf really suit the roles are given very well. Like they have these niche as the two act comic relief, very common trope from Doctor Who, and they fill it. And they do a very solid job doing that. <laughs> like I was a big fan of both of those characters. Yeah, they're they're fine. They're they're a bit. Uh, it, it's a bit Dick Van Dyke. No Londoner has ever actually sounded like that. Even although you can kind of identify the accent as sort of generically kind of London. Um, they're fine. I find the the tendency to use everybody's full name when they're talking to each other. It gets a bit wearisome after a while, but that's that's not the fault of the actors. That's that's yeah. nothing they can do about that. Um, very but, but Ren- it, 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 sorry, go on. I was gonna say very Renfair esque. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, exactly that. Um, but it's yeah, they're 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 fine. And I mean, there's a few familiar names here. We have, so we have Gary Russell, we have Nicholas Pegg, we have uh, Barnaby Edwards, Alistair Locke, who's turned up in a couple of stories we've reviewed before as well. So there's a slightly sort of, you know, it's a little niche here or a little, you know, it's it's this little cast of players who are who are choosing to do their thing. Um yeah, they're they're okay. That brings up a good point. There's a lot of recurring big finish car- um actors in these early stories. Even the writer Jacqueline Rayner herself put in some time as some like quick one-off characters in other early stories. And I guess the, you just have to accept that when they were this little company 
like operating with just their first dozen stories and all they had was the big um, name Doctors and Companions, not much money else for guest casting. It's definitely an area where they've improved in. They've gotten so many big names, even just a few years later from this. But early on, it's sort of a revolving door with the casts. Not a bad thing in a lot of cases, but it's becomes a little familiar. Oh, yeah, I don't mind the fact that they use uh, regular character actors at all. Um, I, I, I think that's absolutely fine. Um, and having a revolving door policy makes perfectly perfect sense because, you know, of course, this was a small company at this point in, in time. This isn't something that was, the, you know, the vast behemoth of 15,000 different ranges or whatever it is now. And, you know, obviously, obviously this early on, you're not going to get your, your John Hurts or whatever turning up. So, yeah, a revolving door is fine. I just kind of wish Barnaby Edwards would revolve out. But other than that, um, I think, yeah, they're fine. And some people have obvious strengths uh, and some people have obvious weaknesses. But, you know, this these are... I mean, if you've ever done any acting, it, you know, it, it's challenging having to do this and you're doing it month after month after month. You're finding new characters, new ways to play them. It, it's not an easy thing to do. And I think, generally speaking, although we can be um, critical occasionally of some of the cast, I think they do, broadly speaking, do a very good job of, of sort of keeping everything going. And obviously they did it well enough because we're still talking about these, you know, 16, 17 years later. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't want to sound too critical, even as I am also being critical. Oh, yeah, I don't want to sound too critical of it. I was just sort of making an observation. It's interesting that they had to keep it so economical early on, and now they can just drop money and get anyone from like the RSC to show up and knock us down. It must be a nice feeling for them to know that they've come that far. Um, but I think probably, is there something else you want to talk about with this? I, I don't think I have much more to say about the Marian Conspiracy. No, and it's kind of surprising we haven't so much time talking about it, given that there's a lot of talk about with Evelyn's first appearance. But I think because even on the surface, there's a lot to get into with sort of the themes. It's really at its core, a very simple and pat story, which is great for a debuting companion because it gives a lot of focus for them and not a lot of complication elsewhere. But it is still just a very, it's a very nice story. And I hope that doesn't sound too mean just to call it nice, but it really is just a very good story that's serving a very great character. Yeah, I mean, this story exists for one purpose, really, and one purpose only, and that is to introduce Evelyn. It does that. It does that very well. It gives Maggie Stables a chance to breathe life into the character, give her some scope and dimension. That's what this story's here for. That's what this story does. That's okay. All right, and that pretty much sums up our discussion on the Marion Conspiracy. And now we can go on to our mailbag feature. We have one new letter this week from Anthony Strand, and he's writing to us on a couple thoughts. First, he talks about the fearmonger and uh, the actor Vince Henderson playing Mick Thompson. He seconds our thoughts that he is excellent, doing such a great balance between engaging hosts and irritating loudmouth. And then pause the interesting thought that if they were ever to recast Christopher Eccleston and abandon all hope of getting him back, he could be a suitable replacement due to his great northern accent. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I sort of agree and I sort of disagree with this one. Um, I think the thing is, is that, I mean, obviously, I, I guess like everybody who listens to Big Finish, we all hold out hope that one day Christopher Eccleston will turn up into a recording studio somewhere in London sit down in front of the microphone and we'll finally get some new Ninth Doctor stories. That's the dream. But, 
I don't know. I don't want to say that that's very, very unlikely. I mean, it definitely is very, very unlikely. But then again, it was always very unlikely that Tom and Lala would end up in a room together recording new stories as well. And, you know, they've managed to do that. So I guess anything's really possible. I think he's um, I think he's a good actor in um, in general. But it, the problem is, I don't know that I've seen enough or really listened enough to know whether he's good enough to fill that role. I'm I'm not against the idea of uh, recasting the Doctors. Uh, I'm okay with it. Um, just sort of a few days ago, uh, as of when we were recording this, it was announced that there's going to be new uh, audio First Doctor adventures with David Bradley as the First Doctor. I cannot tell you how thrilled and excited I am. I, I love the Hartnell era. It's one of my favourite eras of the show. I love Hartnell himself. Um, and, and the fact that we're going to get more stories in that... Um, just I'm unbelievably excited about it, even more than than kind of uh, Derek Jacobi coming back or or, or um, whatever. I just I'm so thrilled about it. So I'm I'm okay with the idea of recasting, and I know they've done it with the the third Doctor as well. With the third Doctor, it's a little bit stuck just being an impression, um, and that's fine. Uh, Tim uh, Trailer is very good at doing that sort of John Pertwee impression, but he's not really being given the space to kind of flesh out his kind of version and. I mean, with the first Doctor, of course, we have uh, we have a precedent of him being recast uh, in the Five Doctors with uh, William Herndall. That's great. That's fine. So so we can go on and have another actor fill that role for the Ninth Doctor. Of course, it's much more recent, and of course, Christopher Eccleston isn't dead. So there's still a hope that he might come back and do it. But you know, I'm I'm okay with it. I don't mind the idea that he he could slot into that role. What do you think? I sort of think it's a little tacky to not to recast someone before they're dead, which might sound like a weird take, but I don't know. I would rather hold up Christopher Eccleston for a full cast audio drama. Though there is something I forgot to mention that does put it sort of into perspective. As him mentioning Vince Henderson taking over Nicholas Briggs for doing narrated stories, and having not listened to that box set yet, but listened to Nicholas Briggs do the narration for the Ninth Doctor, Destiny of the Doctor story, I'm not really excited to go into those Ninth Doctor Chronicle box set because of that. He's not the best narrator, and maybe someone who can actually do a Northern accent would be good for those sort of stories. But I'd rather they held off on a full cast audio until they could actually get Eccleston, or they really do have to resort to recasting because of something, you know, awful. (laughs) <laughs> that was very diplomatically phrased. Yeah, I do know what you mean. I haven't actually listened to Destiny of the Doctor, so I haven't heard him do the Ninth Doctor. I'm I'm only basing him uh, what I'm saying on his performance in the Fearmonger. Um, so I'm 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 definitely prepared to sort of bow to your superior knowledge on this one. Um, I I sort of do agree that there's there's something slightly odd about recasting uh, when somebody's still alive. But you know, it. I mean. This is going to sound much meaner than I, I, I sort of I, I mean it to, but um, it, it's not like Christopher Eccleston hasn't had thousands of chances to come back to the role. Um, so I don't know whether you, at some point you just say, "Ah, well, you know, we've <laughs> we've done everything we can." But I still I I will always hold that little flicker that one day, one day he'll come back. Maybe maybe one day he'll bump into Billy Piper at a party. And and Billy Piper will tell him, you know, I worked for Big Finish. I, I went back and did uh, some time with uh, David Tennant and it was beyond brilliant. Come on, Christopher. Come on, you can do it. Maybe that'll be the catalyst. That's that's my little dream. You know, I, I that's that's what I want to carry with me. 
Yeah, and it's a dream I think all of us share. Let's get on to his second point, which talks about Winter for the Adept. And it's he points out a similarity with it with Eye of the Scorpion, which we're going to cover eventually, and that the Doctor is absent for almost an entire episode. Winter for the Adept, he's gone for almost episode one where he hasn't arrived. And in Eye of the Scorpion, a little minor spoiler, he's out of commission for most of episode two. And he makes a comment about how it sounds a lot like 60s-era Doctor Who, and how it would take Hartnell or Troughton out for an episode because, well, they were shooting 40-some episodes a year in those 60s. So the actors needed a break, and sometimes it would be sort of awkwardly timed where the Doctor becomes a floating hand for a couple episodes or in sort of less insane ideas, just gets locked up in a prison cell. But it is an interesting parallel to make. Yeah, I think there are some interesting parallels there, but I think for... Uh, Winter for the Adept is slightly easier to explain, um, especially if you've read read any uh, of the new adventures. Um, of course, Winter for the Adept was written by Andrew Cartmel, uh, who wrote for the new adventures. And one of the features of the new adventures was that the Doctor was uh, increasingly sort of pushed to the sides. He would often not turn up for the first sort of hundred to sort of 150 pages at times. It, it got to the point where the Doctor was barely even in books, which were ostensibly called Doctor Who. It's a bit like there's an episode of Monty Python where they don't run the opening credits until the 28th minute. Then they have one sketch and then they run the closing credits. It was getting to that kind of length of sort of ludicrousness. And for Winter for the Adept, that felt like, uh, to me at least, for uh, it felt like Cartmel writing in the same mode. It was this idea of, of delaying the Doctor's entrance for a particular period of time, a long period of time. And then so when he actually arrives there's a big impact. I think that works okay in Winter for the Adept. I'm not sure that you could use the same excuse for Eye of the Scorpion, though, apart from anything because it's the second episode rather than the first one. But as a, as a sort of dramatic technique, uh, sort of withholding the reveal of the Doctor is, is perfectly valid. And it's an unusual approach to take for the fifth Doctor. I quite like the way that it works in, in Winter for the Adept, even though it's not that story's uh, strongest point necessarily. Um, yeah, for Eye of the Scorpion, yeah, it, it does kind of feel like um, Peter Davison was away on holiday for a week, even though we know that's absolutely not the que- not the case. Yeah, there's some speculation in the letter that it could be he needed to be out of the studio for some reason, but to put a reality check, most of his audios are recorded in two days, sometimes three, sometimes as quick as one, and so it really not a factor they just have them in for a whole day and they never really need to step out so it's just a dramatic device that's the only real explanation and i guess you could say i the scorpion is doing maybe a conscious throwback just always the story is the goof or maybe it's just i don't know a really weird decision it's been too long since i've listened to a story that i can really pass judgment on that but we'll i guess we'll talk about when we get to there we're into the add-up, though, I completely agree. It's very interesting and kind of fun to hold off the Doctor. And that feels like a very conscious writing decision that pays off well. I quite like the idea that um, Peter Davison might have had to nip out to the shops for 30 minutes. <laughs> so they quickly rewrote episode two so that he wasn't in it. That that, that, that greatly amuses me. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's also been a long, long time since uh, I've listened to Eye of the Scorpion. So 
I, I can't overly comment there, but but I but I do remember it sounding like it was much more of the Hartnell and Troughton eras. It has been a while since I've listened to Eye of the Scorpion as well, so um, I don't want to over comment there until we get to it. But I do agree that it, it feels a little bit more of Hartnell and Troughton eras than it does maybe in Winter for the Adept. Well, I think that sums it up pretty well. And that concludes this week's mailbag. Uh, we need more letters. I know we just started doing the mailbag two episodes ago, but maybe now we can get people writing in because we do really like talking to our fans like this and finding more avenues to talk about Big Finish. So please write to us at talkingwhotoyou at gmail.com or you can contact us on Twitter on the handle at talkingwhotoyou. And you can find me at Kevyko, that is K-E-V-V-Y-K-O, on Twitter as well. Fantastic. So yes, we would love to hear from you. It's quite nice for us to have these sort of slightly more off-the-cuff discussions rather than talking about a specific play. And, smooth link ahoy, that's what we're going to be doing next week. Next week, we're going to take the week off from reviewing our normal episodes, and we're going to take a look back at the episodes we've already covered. We're going to be discussing how we think things have come, how we think that the Doctors and the Companions have been served, and a range of other topics so that we can try and get a sense and a feel of how Big Finish is developing, both in their original early incarnations and also now with the benefit of the 10th Doctor box set as well. So we hope you'll join us for that discussion, but until then, keep talking.